when, when I teach uh, at Mid-America, I teach a couple of classes where I in, uh, instruct students how to do a biblical research and how to study. And it's always been interesting to me uh, when I give them an assignment, particularly uh, an assignment that has something to do with Galilee. And whenever I give them the assignment, I, I instruct them about, you know, what to do, but not everything. They've got to show some initiative, and I'll, they'll turn their work into me, and uh, I'll say, now, did any of you do any research on Galilee? And they'll go, well, no. I said, now, why not? And they'll say, well, it's not important. And I'm saying, how do you know that <laughs> if you didn't look into it? I said, you know, the, one of the things I'm trying to to produce in my students is what I call uh, intellectual curiosity. One one of the problems is that when we read the Bible is that we assume we know what it means. And in assuming that, we may or we may not know what it means. And I think there's a critical piece here of the context, if you will, of this matter of the conversations that Jesus has here. Now notice here in John chapter 1. In verse 43, we're going to pick up here. It says, The next day he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee. Galilee. Now, I, I want to talk about this, first of all, in this idea of the... Uh, whoa. I'm going to go past that. The location. The, the location. Galilee. I don't know if you've ever looked into this, but I, I just want to suggest as we look at lots of these conversations that we know that most of Jesus' ministry occurred in this district called Galilee. This northern part of Israel... Uh, I didn't bring you a, a, a map here, but uh, Terry will bring one one week. <laughs> uh, the, the, the area called Galilee, it's the northern part uh, from Judea and Jerusalem. And it was an area that Galilee or Hagalal or Galil, uh, some suggest uh, the word itself means the circle or the circuit. The circle or the circuit of the heathen. The circle or the circuit of the heathen. Now, Galilee was an area that was uh, considered to be a um, uh, mixed-up area, if you will. It was not purely Jewish. There were Jews and Gentiles. Uh, There was a uh, particular kind of lifestyle that was lived there that wasn't the same as uh, in Judea. In fact, when we were in Israel, I see, knew I'd work it in. There is a remarkable difference in Israel, I will tell you, between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. On the Sabbath in Tel Aviv, they're still partying. They're having a big time. There's nothing shut down. When you go to Jerusalem on Sabbath or in in those environments, that place shuts down. I mean, there's nobody moving around. They're just, you feel all this pent up tension to wait till sundown to start the party. But, I mean, it's completely different. Up in the northern part there, Tel Aviv, on by the Mediterranean, as opposed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Judea is this incredibly religious area, which I've often been fascinated to think that if religion brought peace, Jerusalem would be the most peaceful place in the world. Is it? <laughs> no. Because religion doesn't bring peace. And so Galilee is this northern district This northern area where there are people who are considered heathen. There are people that are considered to be less than, if you will, pure Jews that are in this area. Uh, Jesus did, however, most of his miracles and most of his parables in this district. It was an area that was considered, if you will, to be a place 
where the people were not very serious about religion. The rabbis said this. Remember the, the location. Galilee is north, Judea is south. The rabbis would say this. If you want to get rich, go north. If you want to get wise, go south. In other words, if you want to get rich and make money and waste your life like that, go north, go to Galilee, go in that area up there. If you, wish, if you wish to be wise, if you want to learn the law, if you want to understand God's will for your life, go south to Judea. And so this area is considered to be full of ignorant people. They call them haedits, or people of the dirt, people of the ground. Rabbis believe that people in Galilee likely were unable to learn the law because they were not smart enough. They weren't wise enough. There's no evidence of any what we would consider to be from the rabbinical teachings, uh, from the rabbinical literature, or Alfred Edersheim and others, Josephus, that there was ever what you would consider to be a famous rabbi in Galilee. They just didn't exist. Now, you know, a little sidebar here, because when I work with my students, let me give you one other thing. Uh, Galileans also did not speak a pure Hebrew dialect. Uh, some might even say it was sort of a lazy lip kind of language. You know, I grew up in East Texas, and we got all kinds of words, you know, that can, like water, water, you know, water. Or, I'm sorry, pitcher. Pitcher. You know, that's what we say. You say it that way, it could be somebody throws a baseball. could be something you put water in. Or it could be something you hang on your wall. And the context always determines the meaning. Yeah, yeah you know, the context. I, I grew up in a part of East Texas. It was kind of the lazy lip. We would say, hey, i got to run down here to the library real fast now. Right? In fact, in Louisiana where I pastored, a, a friend of mine was a librarian, and she said a lady brought her three-year-old little daughter into the library, and her little girl was going, where are we, Mommy? And she's looking up like that, and her mom kneels down on her knee right in front of the circulation desk, in front of Sue, and says, honey, we're at the library. Can you say library? <laughs> Again, another example of the Louisiana school system. <laughs> when I lived in Louisiana, our mantra in the educational process was, at least we're not Mississippi. <laughs> that was, I'm serious. They were 50, we were 49. So. This kind of lazy lip, this kind of cutting words off, uh, I have a friend from New York that I said, can I borrow your pen? She goes, it's a pen. Whatever. Give me your pen. Uh, and uh, kind of a lazy lip. Now, remember this because this is how, because of this dialect, if you want to go look at this later in Matthew 26, 73. Matthew 26, 73. This is how the people around the fire, when Jesus is in the Sanhedrin, they know Peter is one of his. They say to him, aren't you one? No, no, I don't know him, I don't know him. They keep talking, they say, wait a minute, the way you speak says you're one of his. You're a Galilean. We hear the dialect. So they didn't speak a pure dialect. They seemed to be more interested in money. They seemed, if you will, to be more concerned about uh, things. They weren't study, studious of the law. Now let me say this on the side because I think this, to me, is important. When I read the New Testament then, and I know this historical setting where it is, it's, it, you know, it's just it's the other side of the tracks times two. This might give us some insight into why the disciples, when they are called, leave immediately. It's not because Jesus is necessarily an enigmatic figure 
that, you know, when he walks by, the music starts, you know, like in the movies. Or that he has some kind of laser ray when he looks in your eye. It's highly likely that these guys know this is our only shot. There's never been a rabbi up here asking anybody to follow him. Nobody comes to Galilee. Nobody comes up here looking for followers. We're not good enough. It's just interesting to think about that, that instead of just some enigmatic, some kind of mystical kind of experience, these guys may have all kinds of motives for following. This is just their one chance. They've never had an opportunity before. Now, the reason I say that is because I think these conversations with these people in this place speak to a powerful notion of Jesus' openness to the disenfranchised or Jesus' interest in the people that nobody else was interested in. I mean, there is no evidence that anybody went to Galilee thinking, hey, this would be a good place for us to go check people out. And, and I, when I think about that, I, I want to kind of lay this down because we're going to come back to this in Galilee several times. I wonder if you or people you know think of yourselves as sort of like a Galilean. Well, I'm, I'm not this. And we you know what I'm not that. And you know, I've done this. Or I've been to that. And, and there's sort of this sense in which we think that we're not good enough. I, you know, I'd say again, yeah, welcome to the crowd. <laughs> like Louis Palau often says, Don't worry if God is ever disillusioned with you. He never had any illusions about you to begin with. God cannot be disillusioned about you. He doesn't have any illusions about you or me. He he doesn't doesn't have any illusions about we're this or that. And so I just wonder sometimes with ourselves or with other people, do we think they're not the right person? They're they're not the right people. They're, they're, They're not the right kind. That's not the kind of people that Jesus was hanging with. Jesus was hanging with the people that everybody thought were not necessary. There's a great book. I read it years ago if you want to read it. It's by a guy named Douglas Hyde, H-Y-D-E. Douglas Hyde. He was a former communist uh, who became a Christian and uh, developed a great ministry. He said this, and the name of the book is called Dedication and Leadership. I, I don't know if it's still in print. Dedication and Leadership by Douglas Hyde when he said this. He said, when I was a communist, when I was a communist, he said, the communist party succeeded because we went to the people that the churches and the government and other people thought were disposable. And we rallied them. You know, if you look at any great movement in our culture, it's not the CEOs and it's not the the titans of industry that make the changes. It's those disenfranchised people that someone gives them a vision of what could be. And they begin to take action. John Wesley, if you study his life, John Wesley said when he began the revival in England, he was preaching to coal miners that no one would go see. He was bringing out little children and families that everybody else said are disposable. Forget about him. Wesley began with that. You know what he said in his uh, journal? He said this, his great fear was after Wesley and the revival had brought these people that everybody else thought were disposable and unusable and not necessary. Wesley said, my great fear 
is that my people, these Methodists, not his people, but this, the people called the Methodists, he said, my great fear is that when these people, as they follow Jesus and become more disciplined and become more of a good citizen, they'll get so rich, they'll forget about everybody else. That probably happened in some measure. Uh, Mary Jane, you're going to ask a question. Yes. Yeah, the Ukraine. There's some of these things going on in the Ukraine. You know, the original, uh, got to get this right, the original revolt that happened in the Ukraine years ago, many years ago, uh, when they broke from the Soviet Union, that the announcement uh, on, on state television came on that um, they, that, that they were, they were, that, that the Soviets were going to stay with them and they were going to be fine, a lot of details like that. There was one lady on the television who was signing for the death. And she started signing, these people are lying. They are not, and I I don't know what I'm doing here. I I have no idea. Looks pretty good though, didn't it? This is why I was third base baseball. Right, Dave? Yeah. She's, yeah, yeah, I don't know. She's signing. And the original break of the Ukraine with the Soviet monster government there was that the deaf people in Ukraine began of movement to resist. The deaf people. That's all the, nobody else knew what this was doing. Nobody else. She was saying, these people are lying to you. The government I mean, just going, going, is lying and she's giving them details. And the original break was with the deaf people in Ukraine. Listen, we need to understand something. I think Jesus shows us here and others. And history is full of examples like this. We got to quit thinking that there's some people that are just not usable. We got to quit thinking that there are certain people, they got to have an income rate or they have an education rate. We got to say to people, you know what? Jesus demonstrates this. He's willing to go to the people nobody goes to, nobody listens to. And yet in our culture, and I'm guilty of it, I know all of us have to struggle with this that we look at people and we kind of size them up and we often are asking, can they help me? Can they assist me? Instead of wondering, can we find those people that others have forgotten about and that can share with them about Christ and their lives will be changed and change the world? This is what Jesus did with these men every time. And so it's important for us to recognize the context. Again, my students, when I get through doing this, and I have a more advanced thing, you know, where I'm testing, they go, I didn't know that about Galilee. I know because you have no intellectual curiosity. Right? You think you know, but you don't. So Jesus demonstrates this, this incredible thing about the, the location. of Now, here's a key thought I want to give you. This is what people are saying. Remember this? Linus, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Right? We, we, oh, we love the world. Well, how about that guy lives next door to you or that lives next door to me? How about people that we've sort of written off as if they're not quite up? To speed, I, you know, I, in my Bible, our Bible study on Friday morning, we've been kind of going back over this idea that Jeff Finley has said to us over, over and over that what we really need to do is we really need to see every person as created in the image of God. Quit looking at behavior. I'm not saying help people, not don't help, or, but I'm saying initially, initially, 
I think if you look at behavior, we get too tied up with things. Instead of saying, let's look at them as they are created in the image of God. No matter who they are. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. But I'm suggesting to you that this, these conversations that Jesus had made a difference. It's easy to love the world, right? It's like Linus here. It's, I love mankind. It's people that are hard to love. It's people that rub us the wrong way. So I, I, just, I just want to leave you that. Second, here's a key thought. Are there people you've written off at work or in your family? You know, when I'm writing this, I'm just going to tell you something. The Spirit of God quickened me. Becky knows what I'm talking about. The Spirit of God quickened me to some people in my family that I've written off. I just thought, ah, they're never going to change. That, that, that's just what I want to ask you. Are there people that you've written off at work or in your family as God being able to do anything different in their lives? Just think for a minute. You probably know their names. If you don't, you know where they sit at work. If you don't, you've probably seen them in your neighborhood. And what I'm going to ask you today, would you write their names on a card and care for 30 days and pray for your attitude about them? And pray God could use you or someone else to reach them. I mean, we've all got people like that. What, what, think about this. What if every one of us in here spent 30 days praying specifically, and let's say in the next six months, half of those people come to Jesus? That'd be a pretty good deal, huh? We'd have to break that back wall out maybe. Or they might have more sense and come to Sunday school with me. You know? <laughs> they might have more, much more judgment than you have. Think about that. What if, what if everybody at Crossings decided, I'm not going to pray for the world. I'm going to pray for one person. That one person that I know I have entree with, but there's some tension here. Maybe because I've kind of given up on them. Maybe because I think they're unreachable. What if we did that? I'm going to do that. I've got my card. I've got two names on it right now. That's enough. (laughs) Right? Yeah. There's another thing about these conversations with Jesus. What happened here? You know, I, I'm not loving this Mac. It's got to be the Mac. I think you have number two on yours, don't you there? Yeah, well, I don't have it on here. Is it not the Mac, Daryl? Is it the Macker? <laughs> the Mackie? How can that be? Anyway, number two. Number two. The religious leaders of Jesus' day. I'm just going to hit this real quick. The religious leaders of Jesus' day. As I said to you briefly, go, go read Matthew 23 uh, if you want to get more detail on this, about Jesus' description of the religious leaders of His day. It appears that in Jesus' day, that the religious leaders were more concerned about how they appeared in public and the way that people honored them. He says, these, these leaders, they want the honored seat at a particular dinner. They, they, they want to be honored and, and they want to be, uh, you know, my mom would say, glommed on, which I have no idea what that means. It's again, one of those lazy lip words. I, you know, glom, I could, I said one time in class, uh, uh, a word, it just English, you know, just, uh, you know, something like that. And I had a Russian student go, and I said, what is that? And he goes, oh, in Russia, that is bad word. <laughs> so I got to be careful. Maybe in Ukraine, you know, glom. But anyway, they want to be glommed on. They, they, they want everybody to make a big deal. Jesus is just the opposite. He moves easily through crowds. He, he's not interested in people making much of Him. He's interested in making much of people. 
Can you imagine? He's, here's this rabbi. He's first of all in the wrong place with the wrong people. Galilee. Second of all, he's not making a big show about it. In fact, he's trying to stop them at many times from making a big deal out of him. Jesus is so different from the religious leaders of that day. He's willing to care. He's willing to listen. The very fact that he's willing to deal with it. And the third thing, so I'm going to go to the third thing, number three. And again, the Mac did this. I'm telling you, the Mac did it. Jesus' ministry to individuals. Jesus' ministry was to individuals. I can just tell you this from some of the rabbinical literature. Uh, records of famous teachers from the ancient world, records from their teaching, records from the ancient world from, from famous teachers, rarely, and I might even say close to never, not, not, probably not never, but, but rarely, do we have any account of any major religious leader or rabbi spending time teaching, discussing with individuals. It's always a group. It's always a large group. And generally, it's always that they come to where the rabbi is. Jesus talked to Jairus individually. The woman with the hemorrhage who speaks to him, who he deals with her individually. The woman, this is off the chart in the ancient world. Rabbis don't do this. They're too busy. They're too important. They're too serious to mess with one. You know, I remember I was telling Becky, uh, I went to another church a long time ago. And uh, went to this class on a Wednesday night. And it was me and a friend of mine. And we just showed up, you know, like we thought we knew what we were doing. He was here in Oklahoma City. And, and uh, so we're, we're, we sat down. And this person's a wonderful person. Don't, don't get me wrong. And we sat down. There are two of us. And the teacher goes, well, where do you guys want to go? And I said, well, France, actually, if, you know, if it's available. <laughs> I'm kind of a smart aleck. <laughs> uh, you, you, you figure? Uh, uh, in fact, one time, one time this preacher is just getting all upset because there aren't enough people at church. You ever had them do that? And they said like this, where is everybody? And I said, right here. <laughs> Real loud. <laughs> Real loud. <laughs> so, you know, if you ask a question, I'm going to answer it. Yeah. So the teacher says, where do you guys want to go? And I think, well, France or Italy, you know, either one of those would be fine. And the teacher said, well, where do you want to go? I said, what do you mean, where do we want to go? They said, well, there's only two of you. Where are we going to go? You know what I thought that moment? And here's my opinion. My, this is my opinion. Not a teacher. Not a teacher. I have told people before, and I'm not kidding you. I, when, I, I, I love to teach and talk about what I'm learning. If it's one person, and God bless you if that ever you get one-on-one with me, that's <laughs> it's not much fun. It's a little intense. I had, I had breakfast with, I think, Dave Plemons and... Uh, Jim Stewart and, and, uh, and uh, Jerry Regeer was like, after I left, I, I really felt bad about that, Dave, sort of. And, uh, but because I had three people, man, I, had, I was going to hand out notes to them, you know. We were at Jimmy's Egg, you know. Uh, but I thought about that. I thought, you know, this person's not a teacher. Because a teacher doesn't need a crowd. They just need a student. That's like Jesus. The, this is so different than the teachers of his day. They'd have a crowd. We're going to look at this. I mean, it's amazing to me that in the push and shove of this ministry, how many individuals Jesus talks to. Can you imagine the incarnate Son of God looking you right in the eye and says, give me a drink of water. Hey, if you knew the gift 
who's in front of you. You'd ask me. I mean, these are incredible stories. We're going we're to have some great conversations. But the idea of Jesus' ministry to individuals. Jesus is often criticized for his willingness to talk to individuals, to encourage them. His, his willingness to touch a leper, a single leper. His, his determination to stop in the middle of a throng of people when a woman with an issue of blood touched him, and he turns around and said, who touched me? Who was it? Who was it? I want to know. Who was it? Instead of saying, hey, we've got an appointment to meet. We've got to go. We've got to go. This is individual. So, okay. All right. Now, here we go. That's kind of the context. I hope this Mac didn't eat the rest of these up. B, the content of his first conversation. The content. In verse 43, one of these guys is one of my heroes. In verse 43, the next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip's an interesting guy. I want to spend some more time later. Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. That's where they probably were originally from, but they lived most of their life in Capernaum. There's a seaside fishing place in, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. I have a picture of Becky in front of the town with a sign on it when we went to Israel. I think I mentioned that. <laughs> Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him. He who Moses and the law also and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nathanael? Now, you know why he asked that now, don't you? Where's Nazareth located? Galilee. Galilee. See, you know that now. That when he says that, are, are, are you kidding me? Jesus of Nazareth from where? Galilee? I mean, Nazareth was a, a small little town, but it was located up by a big town called Sephorus. And in and, and the huge town, Jesus comes from this little backwater town, and he's from Galilee. And, and, and Nathaniel says, that's not possible. Can, can any, think of that, anything, not just a person, can anything, this will give you some sense or understanding of this animosity, this sense of discounting, this sense of, of marginalizing, nothing good can come from Nazareth. That's not possible. Nathaniel said to him, come or he said, and Nathaniel said to him, come, coming to him, and said to him, back, back up, come and see. That's what, you know, Philip just says, well, you know, I'm not going to try to answer that question. Just come and see. I've been with him today. Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, and he said, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You know me, Nathaniel says. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi. Now the word Rabbi, Rabboni, means teacher or my great one. My great one. You are great, Rabboni. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see the heavens open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this is interesting, this conversation, because I, I want to just pick out two things. Number one, this, this conversation begins with doubt. Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, And he expresses to him, hey, I, I want you to come see somebody. We, we, we think we found the one that, that, that Moses 
and the prophets and all of the Old Testament speaks about. We, we think we found Him. We, we believe that we've discovered who the Messiah is. Now again, think of this. I mean, this is a pretty small area in Galilee. It's a backwater area. There's no big parade. The Messiah is not coming in on a big horse. This idea, we found Him. And, and, and what's Nathaniel's response? <laughs> nah, that's, that's not possible. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. No, no, no way. This is off the grid. This is not possible. This doesn't meet the template that we have. Because we think that only powerful people, only rightly connected people, only people that are dialed into the social network, only the people that have all of the intelligence and all the degrees and all the that's the only way the Messiah will come. That's why they missed him. You know what? I like Nathaniel. I like the fact that he was not gullible. He said, Can anything really come from Nazareth? He's not gullible. He's not willing to jump on the bandwagon. Okay, you've seen him, you've spent some time with him, but he's from Nazareth. He wants to see for himself. Philip finally says, well, just, just come and see. You know, I think we should honor these tendencies in people. I'm very concerned that we not give people the liberty and the opportunity to deal with their doubts, to, to, to not have what I call buyer's regret. You know, with people, when we push them and shove them and get too busy with them and we try to make them make a decision because we feel the internal pressure, we got to get a decision here, instead of saying, come see. Make up your own mind. I, I've told you before, when I, when I lead people or talk to people about Jesus, nowadays I'll just say to them, well, you know, would you like to follow Him? I'm not going to tell them what that means. I don't know, I don't know what that means for them in every way. They'll say, you know, you want to follow Him? No? Okay. I'm not going to press you. I'm not going to force you. It's not my job to convince you. Did you know that? You know, Jesus said it's the Spirit that convinces people of who He is. It's just not my... It, I mean, if I try to make it my job, then I'm working in an area I'm not, I'm not qualified. And, and, and so Philip or, or Nathaniel says, I, I got some doubts. Is that, is that okay to have doubts? Is it okay to not know? Is it sometimes that we press people and push people? He just says, "Can it, listen, this can't be true. He's from Nazareth. He can't. It can't be true. Now, we, we, we say, well, you know, uh, all the prophecies in the Old Testament like that, but let me tell you, uh, there wasn't much about Nazareth. Hanazim. There wasn't a lot about Nazareth there. There wasn't a lot of biblical evidence that this was where he's going to be from. This was an off-the-grid kind of situation. And now he's not willing to just buy in. I talk to my students sometimes. We call the, if you will, the, the thinking of the herd. Just whatever else is thinking. He's not willing. He just says, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to go to this quick. What if you gave some attention to your doubts instead of avoiding them? Do you have any doubts? It's okay. You're going to see here in a minute how Jesus kind of responds. You know, the opposite of faith, according to Scripture, in Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's pride. That's, that's what Romans 1.17 says and what Habakkuk 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. 
You know, when Jesus one time met, we'll talk about this guy later, he said, I believe it. Man, help my unbelief. <laughs> I'm not all there. I need help. You see, you, see, you know, sometimes we're afraid of our doubt. We're scared of it. You know what? You don't, there's, there's a link here of Dallas Willard that I would encourage you to go look at. And Willard's done some great work in the relationship between faith and doubt when he said you should doubt your beliefs and doubt your doubts. <laughs> you get that? You, you should doubt your beliefs and doubt your doubts. You should say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is this true? Is this real? You know, Jesus isn't troubled by that. When you read the Psalms, if you've ever read them, you realize that David doesn't always just say, you're great God and you're going to get me through this. Right? Some of these are going, hey, where are you? <laughs> right? My tears have been my food all day and night. I don't think David did this in Psalm 22. Let me think here. My God, what would rhyme with that? My God, oh, that's good. Why have you, uh, what, what, let me think. That. What's a word, what's a word, what's a word, what's a word? Oh, forsaken me. Are you kidding? He's yelling at the top of his voice. Where are you? Where are you? The doubt. Now, now watch what Jesus does. Watch what Jesus does here. The affirmation. When Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What does he mean? The word deceit here means decoy, bait. Something that deceives an animal to take the bite. What he's saying is this, in essence, this is an honest man, a true Israelite. When he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in which there is no deceit. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You're going to have to deal with your doubt deal here, buddy. You know what? You, you, you don't think I can come from, be the Messiah because I'm from Nazareth. You better get that straightened out. You better read the Bible a little clearer. He honors him. He says, hey, here's a guy that won't play the game and won't say what everybody says he should say and is willing to be honest indeed. Nathaniel doubts anything about Jesus but is willing to come see. And in a, in a, in a, in a fantastic moment, Jesus honors him. Now here's the question I want to ask you. What does Jesus honor? Correct confession our honesty. They're things we say we don't believe. We confess them because we've been told they're right. We confess them because we think, well, that's the right thing to say. But we have doubt. Instead of saying, God, I've got to be honest about this. I've got, I've got to be honest with you here that I'm not sure about this. Maybe there is an answer. Maybe there's more information that I need. Maybe I haven't looked at it enough. But, but I, I got some questions here. I'm really concerned that we don't allow ourselves to just tamp those down, never deal with them, and wait till they burst out in some kind of terrible experience later. What does Jesus do? Honors honesty. In this conversation, we can see without a doubt, Jesus isn't put off by doubts. He isn't troubled by doubts. He, I'm guessing, if I could see his facial expression when he sees Nathaniel coming, he's smiling. He said, hey, there is an Israelite indeed. He has no guile. He's an honest man. In women, he's a, she would be an honest woman. Natalie. Yeah. Yes. I am, I am I'm saying that he is honoring Nathaniel's willingness to doubt 
because of his preconceived ideas. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. He's go- we'll see here in just a moment. We've got to hurry. He, he does believe. But he says, I'm not going in. I'm not buying into this thing just because everybody else told me. I'm not accepting this just because someone else said to me. I've got to figure this out myself. He's doubting Jesus can be who he is because he's from Nazareth. But he goes to see. But, but eventually, we're, we'll see this confession here in a moment. But, but I think this is the idea, that he's not willing to be gullible. He's not willing to play the game. He's not willing to say, I don't have any doubts. He's not willing to say, I have confident assurance. He's saying, hey, I don't know about this guy. Can, can we make room for people like that? Can, can we make room for people that say, you know what? He's a good guy. I'm willing to do some more thought about it. I, I, you know, this is a terrible thing to say, but... I'm not sure C.S. Lewis helped us a lot with this idea. That Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or a liar. I think there's something else. I, I, I think there are people that would say, I'm not willing to say he's Lord, I'm not willing to say he's a lunatic, I'm not willing to say he's a liar. But I'd like to look at him some more. And I'd like to consider. I don't, I, I don't think that's helped us. I think we need to make room for people who have doubts. I think we've got to make some room for people to have some conversations instead of saying, he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Which one? Pick one. No. I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I'm confused still here. I'm willing to, to continue to investigate and look, but don't make me make that decision right now. Hey, listen, there, there are a lot of people that are right out here on the edge that are saying, he doesn't fit the template, he doesn't, he doesn't fit what I understand, and, and I don't know what to do. Now, I've got to hurry because you've got to go to church or I'm going to make you late. Look what Jesus says to him. Philip, and then Nathaniel makes this great affirmation, you are the Christ. You, you are. You're the one. And he says to him, you, 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 you believe this because I said I saw you under a fig tree? Now, fig trees are normal places where people want to pray and meditate. And Jesus sees him there, how we don't know exactly. But he affirms to him because this guy must have been, if we look at the history, that this is where people studied and meditated and prayed. What was he asking? When will the Messiah be here? So when Jesus says to him, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip ever came to get you. He says, you're him. What's happening there? This guy, if some, in some measure or another, understands that Jesus knows about him. Listen, there's something about when we understand that we think we know who Jesus is, that's important. Let me tell you something else. Jesus knows who you are. And sometimes what we would just stop long enough and he would say, Cliff, I know you. I know who you are. I know what's going on in you. I understand your life. That that is what we go, then you really are the Son of God. You know me. It's not that I just know you. We've, we've placed a lot, and that's important. Lots of emphasis on knowing who Jesus is. But how about placing emphasis upon Him knowing who we are? He knows you. Did you know that? I mean, we, th- theoretically, obviously. He knows you. That's the understanding that brings Him to this confession. And then Jesus says, if you believe because of that, man, there's more to come. We'll have to finish here because I've got to get you to church. But you can look at this verse 51. He says, look, I'm going to tell you something. There's more to see than this. You're going to see the angels of heaven descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.
thanks for this conversation that Philip and Nathaniel had with you. Maybe today there are those of us who would have the courage to face our doubts or begin and get some help. And we would ask, Lord Jesus, that today that you would guide our thinking and understanding so that we might be followers of Jesus because we not only know who you are, we know you know who we are. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' strong name I pray. Amen. Thanks. See you next week.